0: the Negro Leagues Museum over the past couple months during a time of pandemic and quarantining and social distancing?
1: Well, it has been challenging, to say the least. It, uh, You know, you go through a, a gamut or an array of emotions, you know, and a lot of disappointment, Ken, from the standpoint that this was such a big year for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You know, this is the centennial of the birth of the Negro Leagues. And so there was so much excitement and energy around this year-long celebration that we were creating and the game planning that we had put into this. And then to see it all kind of fall by the wayside due to the coronavirus pandemic, it obviously knocks some wind out of your sail. And, you know, and so you you start to lick your wounds a little bit and it's only natural you feel a little sorry for yourself but as I've said time and time and time again you cannot be a steward of this story and wallow in self pity. The players in the Negro leagues never cried about the social injustice that they faced. They went out and did something about it and I think we have to embrace that spirit. We have to embrace that same spirit of perseverance and determination and so you Again, to use a bad baseball analogy, you got to get back in the batter's box, dust yourself off, and try to figure out how you can hit this guy. You know, he knocked you down, but now you got to get back up and figure out how you can hit him. And and that's what we're doing. So, you know, we're, we're trying to be as creative as we possibly can. We're trying to be as optimistic as we possibly can. We're excited about opening up the museum again, even though it's going to be limited capacity and some guidelines and structure will have to change but we're just really looking forward to people having a chance to get in see the place us get back to you know it won't be business as usual but certainly it'll be business and and back to the job of trying to promote this wonderful history and we've done a pretty good job of that while we've been closed Uh, i've done a gazillion interviews Uh, i don't know if people have gotten tired of hear me talk. I've been running my mind pretty much the entire time, and and that's okay. It's kept the museum on top of mind for many. And it is also, in doing so, it has also opened up, you know, donation opportunities, and and people are supporting the museum and and that whole nine yards through this challenging time. And so that also lifts your spirit.
0: Yeah, and uh, to be 100% perfectly honest, I Will never get tired of hearing your voice or seeing you on, <laughs> and especially you know in now in in this time of in intense Black Lives Matter protests and social activism at, at a time where we need to hear the story of the Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues Museum as much as we can. And I'm I'm glad that you're being given so many platforms, and I hope that this one uh, is is. Is one of them to, to help you spread this very important story of, of our history and make sure that all the great players who are a part of this never get overlooked. Uh, and to your point about dusting yourself off and getting back in, in the box, and that's, as you say, what it's all about. You just got to hope that you're not facing Satchel or Hilton Smith or Joe Williams at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, you got
1: that right. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And, and I'm kind of reminded, too, a little bit. of I, I think it's uh, Joe Posnanski's story about the day that everyone found out that Buck O'Neill would not be part of the 2006 Hall of Fame class when they elected yes. the 16 other Negro Leaguers. And everyone yeah. turned to him and asked him what his response was. And I, I think Posnanski tells it Buck's, Buck just looked him in the eye and said, son, what has my life been all about, if, if, yeah. if not yeah. perseverance? And what well, more you know, important... And I
1: was- I was there that day. Yeah, I was there yeah. that day. And and Joe and Buck and I, we all in our upstairs conference room. And, and I was the guy that had to deliver the news to my mm-hmm. friend that he wasn't going to get, that he didn't get enough votes to get in. And it was one of the most gut-wrenching, excruciating things that I think I've ever had to do because of the fact that we all thought it was a shoe in that Buck was going to get into the Hall of Fame. You know, this was just a mere formality, you know, we thought. And when it didn't happen, uh, I had to go in and tell him. And I was nearly, I mean, literally on the verge of tears, as I was telling him. But the strength that he had that day is the thing that will always stay with me for as long as as my mother would say, as long as I'm in my natural mind. (laughs) The resolve, the strength of character that he demonstrated that day was absolutely amazing uh, in defeat. And he would not allow us to be upset. You know, he's there basically wrapping his arms around us, consoling us, and we should have been consoling him. It it was an amazing day to witness, and I'll I'll never forget it.
0: And and I can't think of a better legacy for Buck than... The museum that he was a part of the founding of and oversaw for the last part of his life to be just as resilient at a time of, of its its greatest obstacles it's faced, and I think that speaks so well of you and your organization.
1: Well, you know, this museum was something that was so near and dear to him. You know, he spent the last 16 years of his life building and then promoting and supporting uh, and trying to help us sustain this museum so that he and the other 2,600 men and women who played in the Negro Leagues and their story would never be forgotten. And and he was driven by that. I I actually think it helped sustain him through his latter years. Uh, It motivated him, and it gave him something to look forward to doing every single day. And and if you knew Buck, no one got more joy out of life than Buck O'Neill. Uh, but the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum was his baby. And I oftentimes say, and this is with no disrespect to anyone who has had a hand in helping shape this great museum. This is the house that Buck built. You know, make no mistake about mm-hmm. it. There would not be a Negro Leagues Museum had it not been for the tireless efforts of, of the legendary Buck O'Neill. Uh, and so that is what now motivates me as well. Uh, every day, you know, I'm obviously self-motivated, but I want to see this museum succeed because I know how hard Buck worked to get this thing going and what this meant to him. And so that drives me every single day. And his spirit is absolutely very much present here at the Negro Leagues Museum. You can feel it. And I'm, and, and, and I'm glad because, you know, it saddens me sometimes that there are people who will never get the opportunity or didn't get the opportunity to meet Buck O'Neill. And he was just one of the most amazing human beings, I think, to ever walk the face of this earth, who just happened to be a great baseball player. But he was an even greater human being.
0: A a first ballot inner circle Hall of Fame human being. And I've been to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and I've also been to both iterations of Yankee Stadium. And I can tell you, 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100, I would rather visit the house that Buck built than the house that Ruth built.
1: (laughs) There's there's just so much more humanity. It's a special place.
0: Yeah, it It, it is.
1: It is a special, special place, Uh, and I hope that others will get an opportunity to come and experience this, and and you touched on it a little bit with all the social unrest that's going on in our country right now. I think the Negro Leagues Museum may be more important today than ever before, the life lessons that stem from this story, uh, because again, it is a story about pride and passion and determination and perseverance, the story of refusing to accept the notion that you're unfit to do anything. So I'll show you. You won't let me play with you. I'll create a league of my own. That league, the Negro Leagues, would then go on to rise and rival the major leagues. And and in many cities, surpass Major League Baseball in popularity and in attendance. And, And so it is grounded in the American spirit. This story is everything that America prides herself in. And so I think it it is an absolutely perfect place for people to come and and look at an alternative African-American experience. But this museum is not an African-American museum. It is an all-American museum. Uh, and, And I think that's why people have responded to it so greatly once they've been exposed to it. I tell people all the time, Kim, what's not to love about the story of the Negro League?
0: No, nothing at all. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> a story of literally many of the greatest players in baseball history. And it's, 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 it's a story about discovering this, this this facet of baseball history that for many years was, was un, uh, mainstream baseball was either unaware or just kind of deliberately pushed to the back of our minds. So walking through the museum is like almost, to me, and forgive me if this is an over-the-top metaphor, but it's almost like a treasure hunt. And it's like finding hidden legends around every corner and then ending up on that great diamond in the middle of it with the statues of all the Negro League greats, the Satchel Paige, the Josh Gibson, the cool Papa Bell, the Martin Ego, and and just kind of immersing yourself and realizing that, that this part of, of baseball culture is every bit as much worth celebrating as the one from uh you know the 1920s that's celebrated in Cooperstown uh so yeah it it is it is to to me it's it's it, as a baseball history nerd there is no greater treasure than what's found in the Negro Leagues Museum
1: yeah no well i appreciate that and that's exactly how we see it it really is and, and you come here and you're going to meet as you as you meet some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. You know, matter of fact, we almost de-emphasize the baseball players in lieu of the story, mm-hmm. because it's really the story that drives this museum. You yeah. know, it's a, it is an amazing story that had escaped the pages of American history books. And, and so countless generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And so by the time that our guests leave here, you know, you're going to meet some great baseball players. You know, there's no question about that. But by the time you leave, you walk away cheering the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. And I tell people all the time, there's nothing sad or somber about this story. So for those who understand that this story is against the backdrop of American segregation and expect to be introduced to a sad, somber kind of story, Got the wrong place. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is not a woe is mine kind of story. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, these athletes never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And that's the prevailing spirit that you see here and feel here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it's very triumphant in nature. And, and I think, again, that's why people have just really fallen in love with this story once they were introduced to it. Yeah. And I
0: will say that I have been to literally... Dozens, if not hundreds, of Chicago Cubs games where I have left not feeling good about the human spirit. So,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> the League Museum sure. decidedly, when well, you can guarantee that 100% of the time, yeah, it's, it, there is no finer place. Do-
1: you know, you know old Buck lived and died with his Cubbies as well because he was a part yeah. of the Cubs yeah. organization for so long. And, of course, he was a, a Royals fan to the very end as mm-hmm. well. But, you know, there was always a part of him. That was connected to the Cubs because he spent so many years in the Cubs organization as a scout. And, and of course, for those who might not know, he signed Hall of Famers Ernie Banks and Lou Brock and now Lee Smith to their first professional contracts. Hopefully, future Hall of Famer and Joe Carter to mm. their first professional contracts. And, and then uh, would go on to become the first African American coach in Major League Baseball history with the Chicago Cubs in, in 1962. And so the Cubs will play, always played a great role in the story of Buck O'Neill. And so his two teams, you know, the Kansas City Royals and the Chicago Cubs.
0: Yes, and and as a Cub fan, I could not be more proud that that our, my organization is the one that uh, that he broke into the major leagues as a coach with. Uh, yeah, that's it's one of the the few times that you can point to where the Cubs were made a genuinely progressive move, and it's, it's, it's one of my favorite aspects of Cub history. Uh, let me do a quick show open here real fast, then we'll jump right into the, the story that we were alluding to earlier about uh, what the museum tells in terms of the greater overall story of the structure of the okay. league. This is the Three Strikes, You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 30, a very special episode. My name is Ken Schultz. I am a contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den, the other voice you have been listening to is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Bob Kendrick is joining me on this episode. Bob, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. And this has already been phenomenal talking to you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. And uh, so before we go back into the past with uh, discussing the Negro Leagues Museum, uh, there is another uh, activity you did over the past week that I wanted to talk about in present day where you held hosted a roundtable discussion for SiriusXM with uh, six African-American players, current-day African-American players in MLB, all-stars like Lorenzo Cain and Josh Bell, uh, second-generation players like Delano DeShields, Dwight Smith Jr., as well as Taylor Hearn and Michael Gibbons. And I watched it, and first of all, it was a phenomenally fascinating discussion and heard a lot of uncomfortable truths that I felt I needed to hear. And... What struck you as you were discussing the the state of present day MLB with these players? Did anything in particular strike you as kind of different in the way they were discussing it in terms of honesty or in terms of what they were telling you?
1: Well, you know, I was very, very proud of those young men. I really was. And, and, and obviously, deeply honored that MLB. Network Radio asked me to moderate this discussion because typically I'm on the other side. People are asking me questions and I got the opportunity to ask them questions. You know, I don't know if anything surprised me, but perhaps the candor that they, mm-hmm. they shared, the heartfelt candor, because this is, man, this is very delicate and sensitive subject matter that we're dealing with. And I think Taylor Hearns is 25 years old. And Lorenzo was the senior citizen of the group. He's 34. Uh And so this is, for the better part, the first time that they've ever encountered this kind of social unrest in their young lives. And I I was certainly so proud of them that they were, number one, willing to step up and have this discussion. And then when we embarked on the discussion, they didn't try to mince words. You know, they spoke from their hearts and and they've been moved to the point where they wanted to be a part of the solution. And and I'm just so proud of each and every one of them for what they're doing, utilizing their platform, even when it's uncomfortable. But as, as I oftentimes say, sometimes we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And when we talk about race, it makes us all uncomfortable. But if we want to invoke the kind of change that I think we all do as citizens of this great country, then we're going to have to be a little bit uncomfortable. And for them, it's even more challenging because there's this kind of pressure that's on athletes to be socially conscious. You know, there, it, And when you look at the NBA and you look at the NFL – Of 75, 80% of their workforce are African-Americans, but not Major League Baseball. And so when they step out, they are really stepping out because they may be one, if not the only, black player, American black player in their locker rooms. And, And so it puts the spotlight squarely on them. But they seemingly were absolutely ready to embrace that. And hopefully their teammates certainly understand and will rise up and lock arms with them as we continue to work diligently to invoke the kind of change that we need. So these kinds of incidents that happened with George Floyd doesn't happen to anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, but no, man, it was, uh, it was a very heartfelt, very, Genuine conversation that we had, and really, all I had to do was get out the way. You know, I got (laughs) to throw out, lob, lob a question or two, and then I just listened to those young men talk, and 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 they spoke from their hearts. And and so I don't think you, and I think that's why it resonated and it made for great uh, TV and great audio because, again, you know, it's not watered down, it's not sugar coated. People were just speaking from their hearts.
0: Yeah, well, you lobbed immensely well, and. I will put up a link link to the conversation in both the Twitter feed and the show description of of this particular episode because everybody should check this out. It's it's really, you hear a lot of genuine honesty. Um, And the part that that struck me the most uh, was Delano DeShields talking about playing the game, talking about being introduced to playing at the Major League level with his father, who was also a Major League player, and his father telling him that you have to be twice as good as a white player in order to make it to the big league level and to stick there. And it struck me that that was the exact same thing that was being told to black players from the days of Jackie Robinson onward. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, And if you hear guys like Henry Aaron talk, that's exactly what they felt. Now, again, you know, somebody will say, well, that wasn't the case, but that is how they felt like they Because I think particularly the early players, man, they were carrying the weight of an entire race on their shoulders. So, you know, not only did you have the pressure of the game, you had the pressure of understanding that, man, if I fail, in many ways, I am letting down a race of people. That adds an additional weight. You know, I tell people all the time when Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers, and this is not an overstatement, he was literally carrying 21 million black folks on his back because had he failed an entire race of people would have failed that's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to bear in a game as you well know ken is a game of failure baseball Mm -hmm. at its crux is a game of failure you fail more times than you succeed in this sport You know, if you get three hits every 10 trips to the plate, you're a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. And he can't fail. And he cannot fail. And and so this thing has been kind of manifested over time. And to think that the modern-day African-American player still feels that levity, still feels that weight, that Delano DeShields Sr. felt compelled to let his son understand, man, you got to go there and you got to handle your business. You got to mm-hmm. outwork. You got to outthink. You got to outperform. You know, and and a lot of people will crumble under that weight of that kind of pressure. You know, and so those athletes in the early era of black from black transition from black baseball over to the major leagues, many of them who didn't make it at the major league level it had nothing to do with talent. It had mm-hmm. everything to do with their inability to deal with the social adversity that came along with them being there. Uh, And so, but the guys who did, you know, from Jackie Robinson on through the great Henry Aaron and Willie Mays and guys like that, you know, and they dug in, they had the intentional, intestinal fortitude that along with great skill allowed them to not only play, but be great.
0: It's, it's really a Testament to just how great every one of those players were that, you look at just like their stat lines and just even gazing at all the numbers on the page, you realize this is already one of the greatest players of all time. And then when you factor in the atmosphere and the environment in which you had to compete that you just discussed and you realize they put up these all time legendary numbers within that maelstrom that they had to enter into every day. And you, it, it, there are, almost aren't words to describe like the, the level of that kind of achievement. And, and that's why. Of people like Robinson and Aaron and Willie Mays and Ernie Banks go down as not just, not just great players, but all time inner circle legends of this game. Uh, oh, and, no question. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of harken back now talking about from activism of the present day to activism back in the days of, of the prime of the Negro elites, because the first name, I was trying to think of brainstorming ideas for this discussion. And the first name that always popped into my mind in terms of when I think of activist figures from the 1930s and early 1940s era of the Negro Leagues, is Effa Manley, the co-owner of the Newark Eagles. And is that, is that right, uh, do you think? Is, is that a proper first name to spring into mind when I think of someone who is not just involved in the game but also involved in raising up the
1: community? Oh, no question. And, and, and that's not a household name. A lot no. of people probably have kind of, you know, Open our eyes a little bit wider hearing that name, Effa Manley. Effa Manley, for those who may not be familiar, as you mentioned, was co-owner of the Newark Eagles. She and her husband, Abe, owned the Newark Eagles. But it was actually Mrs. Manley who ran the day-to-day operations of that baseball team, and she knew the business of baseball as well as any man. Ken had amazing talent play for her. My dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin. Hmm. Larry Doby, who would break the color barrier in the American League just weeks after Jackie with the Cleveland Indians. Willie Wells, Leon Day. These guys are all Hall of Famers. Don Newcomb should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. All played for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. She's the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And and so, yes, she was very proactive in social cause. And the interesting thing about Effie Manley was always this question around what her ethnicity was. There were some who believed that she was biracial. There are others who believed that she was actually white, that she was the product of an affair that a mother had with a white man. Her mother was married to a a black man, which is why they thought she was biracial. Hmm. But whatever her ethnicity was, she could have gotten a pass. She was so light-skinned, that she could very easily pass for white. And yet she assimilated to a black to black culture at a time when it wasn't necessarily popular to be black. But she did use her voice. You know, she started, she was very proactive with NAACP in the Newark area. She started the don't buy where you can't work program and put a lot of pressure on white store owners in Newark to hire African-Americans to work uh, or, you know, as she was encouraging them, don't spend your money there. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, no, she was, so not only did she help build this great Newark Eagle baseball franchise, she helped make some change there in that Newark era, Newark era area. And so she was, she was absolutely revered by the African-American community in Newark.
0: And she was also one of the strongest voices among Negro Leagues owners and executives in terms of trying to convince the major leagues to respect the contracts of the Negro Leagues, correct?
1: Oh, absolutely, because, you know, Branch Rickey wanted to sign Monty Irvin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Monty Irvin could have very easily been the first uh, to break the color barrier. And, and Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro Leagues. But Monty, at that time had just gotten back from World War II. And so Monty was suffering from what we would call then shell shock. Mm-hmm. Today, we would call it post-traumatic syndrome. But Monty was also having contract squabbles with Effa Manley. And Mrs. Manley, who could not stand, to be honest, couldn't stand Branch Ricky. because she felt like Ricky was coming in to try and take players who were legally bound to Negro League teams away without compensation. And so she was prepared to fight Ricky. And Ricky didn't need a fight because, number one, he's trying to very stealthily do this without the other owners realizing what he was doing because, you know, they were going to block this if they could. And so he didn't need that fight. Certainly didn't need a public fight uh, over this matter. And that's when Ricky turned his sight to Jackie Robinson, who was playing here for the great Kansas City Monarchs. Jackie Robinson was absolutely under contract with the Monarchs. J.L. Wilkinson never got a dime for Jackie Robinson. But J.L. Wilkinson could not fight back. You know why? Why? J.L. Wilkinson Wilkinson was white. Mm. So there's no way in the world this white man can stand up and publicly protest what every black person in America had been waiting to see happen. A black man playing in the major leagues. He would have been damned if he did. (laughs) <laughs> and damned if he didn't. Wilkinson made his entire living in black baseball. So if he's out front protesting this and blocking Robinson from playing, that black fan base would have turned their back on him in a heartbeat. And so he relented. And while he publicly said all the right things, you got to believe privately he was seething. And he wasn't seething necessarily because a black man was about to play in the major leagues he was seizing because this black man that you're about to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. Hmm. And he was absolutely right. He sold his interest in the Kansas City Monarchs to his business partner, T.Y. Baird, in 1948, a year after Jackie breaks the color barrier because he saw the handwriting on the wall. It wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when the Negro Leagues were going to fold. Well, when Bill Vett comes to get Larry Doby, Alpha Manley says, hell no, you are not hey. going to take my player. And she does finally negotiate, uh, whether we call it a fair deal or not, I think she got $15,000 for Larry Doby, which was a bargain for a future Hall of Famer. But what does that do? That now sets the stage for other Negro League owners to start selling their star players to the major leagues, just trying to get what they could get out of this game before the business of black baseball die.
0: So I wanted to ask you about the founder of the Negro National League, Rube Foster. And specifically, was he viewed as a visionary in his time the same way that he's viewed as a visionary from the perspective of modern day?
1: Oh, absolutely. Good. Matter of fact, you can make case that Rube Foster may be one of, if not the most important person in in baseball history with what he did in creating the Negro League, you will find very few who have contributed more to the game than Rube Foster. Because you have to remember, Rube Foster was a great player in the pre-era of black baseball. Outstanding pitcher. As a matter of fact, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be Ken, the screwball. Back Mm -hmm. then, it was called a fadeaway, and and Rube perfected this pitch. Mm -hmm. So much so, that the great major league manager John McGraw snuck Rube into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Oh, man. Well, Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. Uh, Foster was a great executive. As you touched on, he organized the Negro Leagues here in a meeting that took place in Kansas City, at the Paseo YMCA just literally a block and a half away from where the museum currently operates. As a matter of fact, we have designated that historic landmark as the future home of the Buck O'Neill education and research center. So we're going to expand our operations into the very building that gave birth to the story that we're now charged with preserving. And of course he would become known as the father of black baseball for his administ- administrative role as the president of the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. He owned the Chicago American Giants, and, and, and he managed the Chicago American mm-hmm. Giants. And as a manager, Rube Foster was so innovative. Rube Foster would fine his ballplayers as much as $5 in the early 1900s if you were tagged out standing up. Man, you're supposed to slide. Drew would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. He was adamant about the style of play that became signature Negro Leagues baseball. Fast, aggressive, daring. They would bunt their way on. They would steal second. They'd steal third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they were stealing home. And, <laughs> and this was all under the, watch, the watchful eye of Rube Foster. The Negro Leagues were seeing unprecedented success over the time that Foster led the league. And then when he died, was, was so close to the Great Depression, the league suffered, and then Gus Greenlee would uh, eventually bring it back. But Rube Foster was uh, incredible in every facet of this game.
0: But what, what I find fascinating about Rube Foster instilling that style of play in all of his players is that he taught it at a time where that style of play was disappearing from the white major leagues. And so when integration... And it disappeared, in, it's disappeared again now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's no launch angle on that bunt drill. A launch angle is a negative number. Uh, and, and so... When you had a player like Jackie Robinson, of course, but also someone like Dobie or Monty Irvin or, or certainly Willie Mays show up to the big league level with all of these skills that these, everyone at the big league level had not seen before. The response was not just this guy is incredible, but we don't know what to do to defense this guy. And it, it's, it's why you have all those immortal clips of Jackie Robinson stealing home and Yogi Berra flipping out at the plates like that. And it, it, that, that yeah. all goes back to know-
1: room. And, and, and I think that's the thing, and I think that's also why you saw the Negro Leagues win the moral majority of the games. the head to head matchups against Major League All-Stars or Major League teams it was because they were playing a different brand of baseball that they were not accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And so Rube Foster knew how to manufacture a run. They could score a run, and the ball never left the infield. And, and so to me, that's a, a far more exciting game than the home run strikeout that we see more by and large now. You know, and again, I know I'm old school and I'm a little old fashioned. And, you know, I'm not saying anything's wrong with that because that's just the way the game is played. I just prefer movement. I, mm-hmm. I prefer guys stealing bases and bunting the ball, moving guys over and that whole nine yards. It just holds my attention a lot longer. And we were talking about this the other day. The The last team that played kind of a Negro League style of play. Really were our Kansas City Royals in 2014 and 2015. You know they had a running game, and mm-hmm. they were not afraid. Ned Yost turned those horses loose, man, and, and so great pitching, great defense, timely hitting, stealing bases. It, it's exciting. It is exciting. We we were talking about this the other day with you know Lorenzo Cain in the game against the Toronto Blue Jays, scoring from first on a single. Yes. Oh God, I remember it that. It doesn't. It doesn't get much more exciting than that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and so, but you, you know, in order to play that way, you do have to have great athletes. See, I think they are great baseball players. These guys are finely conditioned, but the speed that you've had in the Negro leagues, I don't see that in in the major leagues today. And, and of course the Sabre metrics and all of this stuff has kind of basically said, taking the running game out of play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not going to take the bat out of the hand of these guys who are capable of hitting the three run home run. And so you don't see it as as much as you did, you know, back in that, back in that era. But man, you know, to me, that's, they had you sitting on the edge of the seat in 14 and 15 and America fell in love with the Kansas city Royals because they were playing a different game.
0: Uh, Yeah, I certainly did. And, and to your point, uh, one of the biggest parts of that Kansas city offensive attack was the fact that it was, not just speedy guys, but it was also contact hitters, one through nine in that lineup. Yeah. And contact. And this, yeah, in, in this strikeout era, contact is the equivalent of kind of that Rube Foster drill where you say everybody then had to know how to bunt, and everybody on that Kansas City team just had to know how to put the bat in the ball and not swing and miss. And, again, teams didn't know how to defense it.
1: Because you put so much pressure on the defense to make the play. Yeah. You know, in a, in a, in a strikeout game, you don't. But if you're constantly putting the ball in play, you put so much pressure on that defense, and at some point in time they crack mm-hmm. uh and that's what speed and that's what speed does too, you know, and so here they would call it, it move the line, we're going to move the line. see, mm-hmm. but it also takes an investment in the players to buy into a style that may not be as sexy as, mm-hmm. as hitting the ball out the ballpark, mm, mm-hmm. but it's still winning baseball <laughs> when yeah. it's all said and done it is still winning baseball. And when it comes playoff World Series time, you better be able to scratch a run across when you need to. You yeah, just know, Eric uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and I want, wanted to also hit on uh, a comp from present day that, uh, it to me, is a sure thing comp to an old Negro League style of play. And I uh, wanted to ask you this. When you hear Shohei Otani's name brought up and – everyone tries to compare him to Babe Ruth as a two-way player, as someone who pitches and hits and is incredible at both. Do you want to just cry out the names Martin Deego or Bullet Rogan when you hear that?
1: Uh, you know, I was excited about the excitement around Shohei Atani because it gave me a reason to talk more about the players that you just named yes. and other great players who, who were two-way players in Negro Leagues because you pretty much had to be a two-way player in the Negro league, And so most of the pitchers were playing other positions in the Negro Leagues because the roster sizes were not nearly as large as Major League Baseball and because they were all great athletes. So, yeah, you you mentioned two names, Martin DeHigo and Bullet Rogan, who were great two-way players. You know, Martin DeHigo still holds the distinction of being the only player to be enshrined into five different countries, baseball halls of fame. He's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. Wow. Played all nine positions and played them well. Well, <laughs> one year in the Mexican league, Ken, he goes 19-2 and with an 0.90 ERA. The sucker hits three eighty seven that same season and won the batting title. You know, and, and so yeah, you. It, so it didn't bother me. It just gave me a chance to talk about the great two way players. Leon Day was a great two way player. Hilton Smith was a great two way player, and, and and these guys are all Hall of Fame pitchers. As Buck O'Neill would say, Leon Day might have been a better center fielder than he was pitcher. And he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame Hmm. as a pitcher. Wow. And uh, Cool Papa Bell started as a pitcher too, didn't he? He started as a pitcher and hurt his arm. And him hurting his arm might have been the best thing that ever happened. Because they moved him to center field where that blazing speed took over. Man, Hmm. he's running everything down. And while he didn't have a great throwing arm, because he had hurt his arm, he had a very quick release. And Hmm. he could play so shallow because he could get on his horse and run it down. And, and so he was an outstanding center fielder in the Negro League. So, yeah, hurting his arm might have been the best thing that ever happened to Cool.
0: Oh, yeah. And that, that started the legend, because uh, when it took the focus off his arm, that put the focus on his legs. Exactly. <laughs> Can, I, I, I know you've told this story umpteen times before. Can you retell the story, the origin of the legend of Cool Papa Bell, Turning off the lights and get, or turning off the light switch and getting into bed before the lights go out.
1: Well, and and it is a true story. And for those who may not have heard the story, Satchel Paige, who was Cool Papa's teammate with the Pittsburgh Crawfords in, in 1935, and they played together in various parts of the globe, would say of his friend that he was so fast he could walk in the room, turn off the lights, get in bed, pull up the covers before the room get dark. Well, they were on the road. And when they travel, Satchel and Cool were, were roommates. So in this particular instance, O'Cool gets to the hotel room before Satchel does. He walks in the room, he flips the light switch on, there's a delay before the light comes on. He flips the light switch off, there's a delay before the light goes off. O'Cool says, Uh-huh. <laughs> when Satchel gets to the room, kid, Cool is waiting on him. Satchel gets in bed, Cool gets up, Roomie, I'm so fast. I can flip this light switch off, run over, hop in bed, cover up before the room gets dark. And Satchel's (laughs) like, cool, you fast, but you ain't that fast. And (laughs) so cool, Papa Bell bet his meal money. And old Satchel took the bait. And in one of the greatest sports pranks of all time, because that light had a shortage in it, cool was able to flip that light switch off, run over, hop in bed, (laughs) cover up before the room went completely dark. Satchel was so outdone that he ah. just always told folks that cool was that fast.
0: Ah. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the first thing people think of when they think of cool Papa bell now. So in a, in a way that hotel room kind of became his legacy, which is kind of awesome.
1: Well, and it did. And, and you know, I tell people all the time though, you do not have to fictionalize the speed of cool Papa bell who wants to 175 bases in what would be the equivalent of a less than 200-game season. He twice, honest to God's truth, twice, scored from first base on a bunt uh-huh. in exhibition games against Major League All-Stars. Yeah. If he bunted the ball and the ball bounced twice, put it <laughs> in your pocket. You weren't going to get it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I could see Javi Baez trying to score from first on a bunt, but uh, yeah, I I think Cool Papa Bell might be the only one to pull it off, and twice, man.
1: (laughs) Well, the major leaguers just weren't expecting it. They weren't expecting that kind of aggressiveness, Mm -hmm. and and so they weren't prepared for it. Yep,
0: and uh, I I can't let you go here without uh, touching on a couple of Satchel Page stories because, I mean, you gotta at this point uh i i'm told by our, our mutual friend Barry bradford uh to ask you uh what did satchel Page say about the radar gun
1: well you know they were playing in they were playing in Yankee Stadium and satchel didn't know the, the military at this point in time this was well before the advent of of the radar gun and so the military had old crew speed tracking device and satchel didn't know they were clocking him. And he, he, you know, retires aside, comes off the mound, the kid from the military comes over to him and says, Mr. Page, Mr. Page, we clocked your fastball at 105 miles per hour. And Saffer looks at the young man and says, son, I wish I'd known you were timing me. I could have thrown harder than that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> he was he was in many ways was the Negro Leagues. I mean, he Ooh. was Satchel had everything that a star is supposed to have to be a star. Yep. So, he had obviously the great stuff. He had the charisma, and then you add the longevity. See, Satchel knew how to sell it. And 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 then he could back it up. And and so if he was doing this thing today in this era of social media, he'd still be the biggest star on the face of the planet, just as he was one of the biggest stars on the face of the planet in that, in that era of the Negro Leagues. He drew the biggest crowds. People came out to see him. They, they, matter of fact, entire towns would shut down mm-hmm. when the man would ride in because they wanted to see him do his thing. And, and whether he was 42 or 52, by the time he gets to the major leagues, we don't really know, <laughs> but he was still amazing. You know, you think about it, even at 42, he goes six and one with a 2.4 ERA. His rookie season at age 42. Mm-hmm. Once he finally got there, you know, and, and many believe that he might have been closer to 52 than 42. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't know his age, and if he did, he didn't tell.
0: <laughs> age didn't matter because the only thing that mattered was he was going to strike you out regardless.
1: That's it. That's yeah. it. And, and, and while the 105 is incredible, yeah, but that's oh, yeah. not really what made Satchel so special. And, and, and you know 105 is pretty doggone special. Mm-hmm. But 105 with pinpoint control yes. is virtually unhittable. And that's what Satchel brought to the table, the control. Mm-hmm. He could put it exactly where he wanted to put it. And, man, I'm not talking about just throwing strikes. No, the catcher set the target. He hit the target. He didn't miss. Yeah, that's what, made, that's what separated Satchel from, a, you know, a lot of guys throw hard, but that's what separated Satchel Page from everybody else.
0: He was the only pitcher that I'm aware of who brought a gum wrapper to the mound with him for warming up, right?
1: Yeah, he, he would absolutely have the catcher sit a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper on top of home plate. And wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper, Satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper. And Ken, as Satchel would say, he'd work both corners of that chewing gum <laughs> wrapper, man. <laughs> That's
0: great. That is a line. Yeah, he. I mean, just that right there tells you Satchel would thrive in the age of Twitter. My goodness. <laughs> uh, Bob and, and he being- never
1: lost that control. He never yeah. lost it. Not even as an old man.
0: Oh, yeah. That, that, I mean, that's why he pitched in the Major Leagues at, what, 65 with the A's was his last
1: absolutely Absolutely. He, he was believed to be 59 when Charlie Finley brings him back to huh. pitch for the Kansas City A's. And he pitches three shutout innings, giving up only one hit in those three innings. a great trivia question. I played against the Boston, Boston Red Sox in 1965. Who got that long hit off a of satchel? Carl Yastrzemski.
0: <laughs> and that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Bob, is there anything else you'd like to plug while i still got
1: you here? Well, you know, we're looking forward to reopening the museum on on June 16th. And for those who are so inclined, we would love for you to become a member of our team, to learn more about either making a contribution to support the Negro Leagues Museum or becoming a member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Please visit our website at www.nlbm.com. And if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter at NLBMPrez, P-R-E-Z, same username on Instagram. We're posting information about what's happening here at the Negro Leagues Museum and Negro Leagues factories and things of that nature. So, but, you know, and, and again, make plans in the, in the very near future to come experience this great museum. Yeah,
0: everybody who goes to Kansas City needs to go there. It is an essential part because, as you say, it's a museum not just about baseball, not just about the Negro Leagues. It's a museum about what's still good about America. And we need every Absolutely. bit of that right now. Uh, Bob Kendrick. Yes, we do. So
1: wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Tim, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.